Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, a special conference today, jointly sponsored by the Department of Medicine and the Centers for uh, Health and Aging of uh, Dartmouth College. Um, our speaker today will have no conflicts of interest to, to report, and uh, I'd like to have him introduced by uh, Steve Bartels. Uh, Steve is a professor of psychiatry uh, and of uh, community and family medicine uh, and the Herman O. West Distinguished Professor of Geriatrics uh, and a real game changer at the, in the uh, environment of uh, Dartmouth College uh, regionally and nationally uh, in uh, many aspects of uh, psychiatric care. And um, so it's with great pleasure that uh, we'll have Steve. Thanks. Thanks for being here this morning. So, so uh, we um, uh, a couple times a year uh, try to identify um, leading thinkers uh, in the area of geriatrics that are trying to change the way we think about uh, delivery of care. Uh, and so I'm really pleased uh, today to introduce uh, Dr. Malez uh, Bustani, uh, who is uh, is one of those uh, up and coming uh, change leaders in many respects. Uh, Dr. Bustani got his uh, medical degree uh, at the University of Damascus um, and then did his internal medicine residency at uh, Mount Sinai Medical Center. Uh, he then went on to do a geriatric medicine fellowship at, uh, at the University uh, of uh, Chapel Hill and also uh, got a master's in, in public health. Um, he now uh, has a, a number of uh, positions that are really uh, quite interesting, uh, including uh, being a director of a healthy aging brain center that you'll hear about today. But his most recent position, in addition to being an associate professor, is that he's a chief of innovation and implementation at the university, at the Indiana University Health System. So he's moving beyond geriatrics to thinking about innovation and change within systems of care across the entire healthcare system. And when we were talking last night at dinner, we generally agreed that that's not a bad thing for geriatricians to be doing, given that complexity and thinking about comorbidity are the things that really are driving so much of, uh, of health care uh, delivery. And so that's, that's really his, his area at this point. He has uh, numerous awards uh, for teaching and for uh, scientific uh, uh, presentations at the American Geriatric Society and elsewhere, and has over 100 uh, publications. Um, this morning, he'll be talking a bit about something that's near and dear uh, to Dartmouth, uh, uh, is uh, should we screen or not? Um, and this has to do with uh, memory uh, disorders. Um, uh, but uh, in particular, he'll be uh, not only looking at the merits of screening, uh, but also what should we be doing around the epidemic of brain disorders um, and dementia in particular, which is his area of expertise, for which he's uh, had many, many grants. So. Great to uh, welcome you here to a uh, nice, warm uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. Yeah. Thank you. Good morning. Um, so it's 30 degree warmer than minus 17 in Indianapolis on Sunday. So I was ready to swim. Yes. Um, so I'm going to share with you the story of screen or not screen. Relative, relatively, this question has been theoretically answered twice, one in 2011 by Medicare and Medicare Services by claiming within your annual wellness visit that's now officially paid for by CMS, there's some element of cognitive detection. And um, they didn't use the word screening, but implementing the detection of cognitive impairment, a lot of healthcare system are using the screening tools uh, of questioning. So that's one. And then if you're not familiar, just the US Preventive Service Task Force in November updated their recommendation and they came back and say there's insufficient data again for to, to make a decision if, if we should or should we not screen for dementia. So you got an independent um, um, uh, 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 you know, a governing uh, entity saying we, we don't think we should make it a policy and then you got CMS who, who said indirectly that we are going to pay for you to detect cognitive impairment. So I'm going to tell you the story behind this. And what I'm going to tell you in the end of the day, at least the data right now, it doesn't really 
give me a strong evidence to answer that question. But if if you're going to do any kind of investigation, at least my pathway you'll see at the end of the slide, is I think you should try to do randomized control trial for dementia screening, but your screening cannot be just alone. You can't just simply randomize people to screen versus not screen and think the screen group might get benefit. It might actually cause harm. What I'm testing is if I screened you, followed by diagnostic confirmation, followed by a good management, is that better than the usual care? So the answer, hopefully I'll give it to you in 2017 when Steve Bartell invite me again to this. <laughs> so you know, this is part of the marketing addiction that I learned. This is how you can continue getting uh, invited. Um, <clears throat> so that's in a nutshell what I'm gonna tell you. So my story I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't think you should screen uh, as a policy. You can go into the individual level and talk with that person, benefit harms kind of thing. But if you're gonna decide to do screening, Test it and don't stop at the screening. Make sure your system is ready to handle what you're going to do after screening. Very similar to the depression. You know, the US Preventive Service Task Force did the same thing. If you're going to do screening for depression, you better have the system ready to manage the screen positive for uh, depression. So that's the, the same concept. The same thing with mammogram. You know, if we didn't know how to manage the, the screen positive of mammogram, it might not be a good idea. All right? So this is the funding sources that I'm going to use to, to um, back up my statement. Um, a lot of it came over from the NIA, uh, National Center on Aging, but we got some funding from AHRQ, uh, NIMH, and most recently from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. So I'm going to go through um, uh, these seven studies that I've been involved with uh, directly or indirectly uh, for the past now almost two decades. The first one, the future impact of Alzheimer's disease, this is the one that um, gave me the rationale to become a dementiologist or spend the rest of my life. It seems from this study, the, 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 the really the take home message, even by when I'm 80 years old, there will be enough people for suffering from dementia, that I don't have to worry about job security. So that's that's the that's what's the beginning of telling me this is the right path. The second one is this systematic review we con I conducted in 2000, 2003 for the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, which was updated just last November. Then the randomized control trial of our collaborative care model for dementia. Um, then with the public attitude uh, of dementia screening, then a lot of implementation started in 2008, in dissemination, and just uh, last year we got, uh, we started um, doing the first dementia screening trial in primary care. So this is the report card of dementia care in, in, in primary care based on data from Indianapolis, but is not unique to Indianapolis. And this unfortunate uh, report card has not changed since 1990, uh, my mentor and boss, Chris Callahan, had that in 1990. We repeated it in 2000, and I just repeated it again in 2010. There's been no change. This is the current report card <coughs> for dementia care. So the prevalence of cognitive impairment, which is bigger umbrella, and dementia is high in primary care, somewhere between uh, you know, 6 to 25%, depending on your definition. So if you were wider and claiming any cognitive impairment, you get almost one out of four people who are 65 and older in uh, primary care. But if you were more specific for dementia, that number dropped down to 6% um, or so. Um, we are recognizing only, the system is recognizing only 20% of these cognitively impaired people. Doesn't matter their severity. So even if they have dementia with moderate level, the primary care system um, doesn't recognize um, eight out of 10 of them. Um, and, and a lot of these folks with cognitive impairment, dementia or not, they receive a lot of inappropriate medications that um, are really have a, a deteriorating effect on their cognition. Example, giving somebody with cognitive impairment Benadryl it will bring them over, a good chance bring them over to the hospital with confusion, delirium, and start the workup. Or giving them, um, you know, um, uh, um, 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 ditropan or 
or medicine for the bladder and medicine for, uh, for Alzheimer's disease, this is kind of like, um, at least the data suggests you're wasting two of these drugs. Um, and we are not giving them appropriate drugs. So even though the FDA said, if you have Alzheimer's disease, uh, you can give some medication, and you might argue for the value, the clinical value of that, but um, it doesn't make sense that you're not giving them FDA-approved medicine, and you give them FDA non-approved medicine, like FDA said, a black box warning, such as the psychotropics. Um, and these folks with dementia and primary care and cognitive impairment, as you know, they don't have just dementia. They have a lot of other comorbid conditions, and therefore the management of their other comorbid condition is not that good. Example, their, their hyperlipidemia, their diabetes, and their blood pressure. So that's the report card. Um, and if you translate that report card to a financial impact, uh, at least from the payer perspective of CMS, it's, it's significant uh, money. This is very, very conservative. Um, that's you know, uh, uh, you know, somewhere between $200 billion in 2007 until um, close to a trillion dollar in 2050. People anticipate uh, the cost of dementia. And you can say this is an advocate number, so you can drop it by 10 per Say this is, the reality is just 10%. That's a lot of money still. Even if you said this is really the reality, is 10% of the 200 billion, that's 20 billion. That's still a lot of, every year, $20 billion we spend, um, and could be all the way to 100 billion in 2050. So uh, the report card has impact on finance. And this one is not going to change by 2050. Not going to change. Even if Pfizer's, Lilly, all these other pharmaceutical company discovered something in the next five years, the issue of implementing it and changing its impact will not reduce these numbers. And this is a study that I started in 2000, um, and it was the reason for me to, like I shared with you, to go to dementia, is, 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 is really telling me uh, the following. So what we did, we tried to forecast um, uh, an impact of discovery on dementia numbers and dementia uh, care needs in 2050 based on what medicine has accomplished for two conditions um, that r relatively similar to Alzheimer's disease. One is the heart failure. In the heart failure model, it was a, a, we call it more of like a primary prevention model. Um, in two th if you I don't, all of us were not living here in 1940s and 50, where the mean age of heart failure was around 45 to 50 years old. That's the mean age of onset. Now you've got the mean age around 70 or so. So over five to seven decades, our medicine have actually been able to postpone or uh, the, the onset of heart failure significantly. And has done that not, by the way, by medication. Has done it by public health effort, <coughs> by eradicating rheumatic fever, which was the main reason for heart failure in 1940 by affecting your valves. So that's one model. We thought, what if pharmaceutical company discovered similar impact or public health to what we have done <coughs> with uh, with uh, with heart failure, and we call this the delay. This is the delay model. And the other model is symptomatic treatment, which is Parkinson disease. So Parkinson disease, uh, in the 50s and the 60s, there was significant disability. And current medications actually did not change the pathology of, of Parkinson disease, but helped us manage its disability uh, better. And we call this slow. That's the, this, this is the, the, the second model. And then we thought, what if we got very, very lucky and we had some kind of uh, multi-component intervention that can deliver delay model and slow model, all right? And we thought if we discover this in 2010 and implement 2010, how many cases of dementia we will face in the United States in 2050 and how many of these cases will be in the mild stage where it does not require institutional care, all right? So in the best case scenario over here, you can see combined total number, we still have 6 million people with Alzheimer's disease. 
and the majority of them will be in the mild case, but even in the severe case, there will be more than two million. That was the job security for me. It's like, even in the best case scenario of an amazing, miraculous drug, we're gonna have to make a system ready for these six million people, and two million of them will require significant disability uh, compensation, all right? Uh, so the rationale, as you guys know, uh, every time we have um, a high burden disease that is not recognized, people right away jump in and say, let's screen, all right? So this is a great example of the prostate cancer. People felt <clears throat> a lot of people suffer from prostate cancer. Uh, our current examination is not able to pick up cases um, early or recognize them, then they did the PSA, and the assumption was if you do that, life will be better for these people. And as you know, the US Preventive Service Task Force a couple of years ago looked at the data again and actually recommended against even uh, screening. So, but the, the normal for advocates, even scientists, we're not supposed to be advocates, we're supposed to be skeptics looking at the data. We have the same uh, feeling Things are highly expensive, highly burdened. We're not recognize them. If we recognize them, life will be better. All right. Um, and what I what I will argue for you, it's not as easy as that. There is unintended consequences, uh, and there is potential burden. And the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, when they look around the benefit and harm, they don't do it because they're trying to make our life hard. They really looking at the balance of benefit and harms from a public uh, perspective. So in 2003, when we looked at that questions of uh, benefit and harm of dementia screening, the US Preventive Service Task Force had this following analytic framework. And in their recent update, they did almost the same concept. Uh, what, what that mean is we usually start with the primary care population. That's the target of our setting. Primary care population, prevalence of dementia is 6%. If you go to memory care practice, the prevalence of dementia is 50% very different setting, all right? And that's the major source of problem, is most of the advocate and scientists, like myself, practice in a 50% prevalence setting, and they take that perspective and generalize it to 6% prevalence. That's a huge leap that has different uh, unintended consequences. So in primary care setting, we wanna know uh, the, prev uh, the, the prevalence of dementia, uh, unrecognized, we want to know if screening improved that, and do we have something to offer to the, to the recognized cases, and what's the impact of the recognized cases intervention on very clinically relevant outcome, like effect on function, uh, healthcare utilization, behavioral issue, caregiver stress, um, um, you know, accidents, and overall the, the healthcare-related quality of life. U.S. Preventive, Preventive Service Task Force, like always, to find direct evidence, like randomized controlled dementia, dementia screening trial, that connect this with the outcome. And there has not been any published uh, studies. We are the first to do it, but again, we're, we're not gonna give you data until three, four years uh, from now. So that's the, the framework. In 2003, and even now in 2013, the gaps that are identified by the U.S. Preventive Service Task are almost similar. Number one, they, don't find, they did not find direct evidence. Number two, um, they felt that the recurrent treatment, pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic, it seems like is not actually changing the course of the disease. They are more symptomatic, like Parkinson's disease. So the issue of screening by uh, you know, intervening early on to change the progression of the disease, at least the, the drug that we have does not do that. And then in 2003, they said, we don't really need to have data on the feasibility and utility if you implement dementia screening diagnosis program. That change, at least our work have shed some light on that gap, but that wasn't enough in 2013. To, um, to change their recommendation. <coughs> so I'm gonna now start with you what we did in 2003 until now, that the past 10 years. So the first question was, 
let's run a dementia screening diagnosis program in primary care, in the real world, in a diverse population, and see what will happen. We found that out of the 65 years of age people who have one clinic visit to primary care in the past year, if you screen them who are asymptomatic, they don't have IC9 code for dementia diagnoses or even other severe mental illness, they are not taking any medicine for dementia or Alzheimer's disease, if you screen them, 13% uh, will screen positive, but unfortunately, after those who screen positive, if you invite those who screen positive for a diagnostic confirmation, 50% refuse. Even if when we send the team to their home, you know, we gave them money to cover transportation. So there was more than just simply access issue um, of that contribute to the 50% rejection. So that was the big surprise for us. Uh, it's almost like, you know, 50% uh, of people who screen positive for mammogram don't come back for the biopsy confirmation. And then imagine some people end up treating them for breast cancer based on mammogram screen. So that's kind of example. The second thing we felt is the yield of the diagnostic assessment. Very typical, like every other screening uh, tools. You will have false positive and you will have false negative. This is why you can't stop at the screening. There is no perfect screening tool that is so easy, less than five minutes, that will be 100% sensitivity and 100% specificity. It just does not exist. And if you are in a, in a setting where the prevalence of your disease you're screening for is low, you will always deal with false positive. And in this case, uh, only 47% of the people who screen positive have dementia, 33% have uh, mild cognitive impairment, but at least 20%, they were completely normal despite their screening result. <laughs> completely normal on the diagnostic assessment. So they you need to be ready for these 20%. This is why you can't stop at the screening. You have to do the confirmation. Um, and that, therefore, when we did this and calculated them together, our prevalence numbers is 6% with 95% confidence interval, really, really tight from 5.5 to almost 6.6. .6. So that's at least the prevalence of dementia uh, in, in primary care setting. Very, very low compared to other places uh, who are, um, you know, you can, uh, who, who inflate some number indirectly, not intentionally, but at least in primary care setting uh, from our data, the prevalence is around 6%, 65 and older. Uh, most of these cases have uh, Alzheimer's disease pathology, uh, maybe purely Alzheimer's disease or mixed with vascular pathology. Very rarely in primary care you see Lewy body diseases or frontal temporal dementia. So you're gonna be ready for Alzheimer type for now, uh, at least. And um, as I told you, only 20% are recognized. And overall cost, is for every extra dementia case you will bring over to the system, it, you have to be ready for $4,000. So um, keep that in mind before you do the screening. And you might see that that actually might be uh, um, offset by a lot of other things. But for now, at least be ready in your pocket to have 4,000 upfront. If you anticipate you'll pick up, let's say 1,000 people, that's $4 million ahead, you have to be ready for, uh, to take care of them, just to make the diagnosis, not, not the management. <coughs> so that was the first step. The second step in, in US Preventive Service Task Force was, what if, uh, what is the public attitude of dementia screening? Uh, were they accepted dementia screening? Um, are they gonna be concerned about it? So there was no instrument, so we had to develop an instrument um, that will capture that attitude, and we created one called Prison PC. It has four uh, subscale. One, capture the perceived benefit of the, of the public. The other one, the perceived stigma, the perceived impact on independence, and the perceived suffering from depression and anxiety. And what we did, we did that PRISM study and we compared it in two healthcare systems, one in the United States and one in the United Kingdom. And the concept there, in the United Kingdom at least, you don't, you have a universal healthcare system, um, you know, they don't have um, the, 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 the problem of fee-for-service even though 
65 and older, a lot of them have Medicare, so it's technically it's almost like universal healthcare system. But we found difference in public attitude between the United Kingdom and the U.S. Uh, the acceptance was, you know, relatively um, uh, more in the United Kingdom. Um, the perceived benefit was similar between the two settings. There was more stigma, surprisingly, in the United Kingdom. Um, and there were more perceived negative impact on independence and more neg uh, perceived suffering uh, in the United Kingdom. So having universal healthcare system, at least, it looked like will not, will not protect you from the public perceptions about uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease screening. Then we went back and we did another study to look, what about the people who, were, who had experience with Alzheimer's <coughs> disease through their position as being a caregiver, as a family caregiver? Um, if we ask them later, uh, now you know your loved one had Alzheimer's disease, you've been taking care of them for a couple of years right now, would you like to be screened for dementia? And what's your additive dementia screening? And compare them with non-caregiver, uh, other people who don't have that experience. And we found that the folks who have caregiver experience were less enthusiastic about accepting the screening, um, and specifically driven by their suffering. They felt, my God, there's so much, I mean, this is makes sense, but there was so much suffering I saw in, in my life, and I'm, I don't see the value. I feel the screening will might increase that suffering by making me exposed to it earlier. I rather wait, you know? I don't want another two years of feeling suffering, and, and then, especially you don't have something to, to make that suffering less. Um, at least that's our interpretation of the data. And then when we talk with them and figure out, all right, let's imagine we have a perfect dementia screen diagnosis and management uh, system. Um, what are the top three barriers from the public perspective? Uh, and we found out the big one is emotional suffering. Uh, the second one was loss of driving privilege. Now, in Indiana, I don't have to report if somebody screened for, for dementia positive or have dementia, but in <laughs> California, that's different. And that's been a major barrier even for primary care doctor to make the diagnoses. Um, and then the depression, being depressed People a lot of were concerned if I screen positive, I'll find out about it, and I'll be depressed, and I really, you know, there's nothing wrong with me right now anyway. I don't want to do that. So that's technically the top three barrier. Then um, we looked um, in particularly about um, what are the risk factor from a public perspective, the patient perspective, about dementia screening acceptance. And we found the big one is the perceived benefit. If somebody, that makes sense, if somebody felt, look, there's benefit of the dementia screening, they will be more uh, you know, uh, active in accepting undergoing dementia screening. But there was something interesting uh, uh, interaction between age and race. So if you were African Americans and older, you had uh, more likely to refuse screening, but if you were, uh, I'm sorry, more likely to accept screening, but if you were white and older, you were more likely to refuse screening. So that there was some weird interaction between race and age. And obviously this generation went through the, you know, the Alabama problems with clinical research, and so there's, there's, there's a mistrust. Uh, and this is maybe why when you are older and African-American, you, you get a little bit uh, <coughs> uh, you know, paranoid and concerned about uh, any kind of public uh, initiatives. Now, we went back to the screen positive who refused the diagnostic assessment and tried to figure out why are they not coming back for the diagnostic assessment. So the number one, we felt it's all about their perception if they're symptomatic or not. And their perception of symptomatic is not the total screening result. It's not like if you use the mini mental status examination and I set up a screening cutoff on 25 and below, um, and I told them, look, 25 and below is screen positive, let's go confirmation. For them, they say, when you ask me what's today's date is, what's the year is, if I answer correctly, then they will not come back for the diagnostic assessment. Doesn't matter if they forgot about the three items later. So for them, the perception was, there's something wrong with my mind if 
I don't know what's today's date, what's today's month, what's today's year. If I know the answer for these three questions, we call them temporal orientation, then I don't care what happened rest. Um, I'm, I don't think I have any problem, so I'm not gonna come back. So that's one, one uh, factor, and we talk, I already shared with you the African-Americans uh, and age interactions, uh, even in the diagnostic confirmation. We did other studies of public attitude to even dig deeper, and we found out that the major elements, the major factor over here, the major factor that drove, drove their reluctance to come back for the confirmation was their perceived stigma. So here's what happened. When you were asymptomatic, coming over to your primary care doctor for taking care of your hypertension, your diabetes, everything, and I'll come over and say, hey, you know, would you like me to screen you for dementia and something like this? 90% of the time you'll say yes, okay? But then if you screen positive, if you screen positive, and I'm telling you, it seems like you screen positive, I need to confirm you back, and here you start hesitating. And the big factor of these pause is in the beginning, if you felt life is good, benefits for dementia is good and everything, you'll say yes for the screening. But if you were feeling like, oh, wait a second, now it's not about theoretical question. Now I am screen positive. And if you had perception of the stigma, like my doctor now gonna treat me differently, I'm gonna be taking, the driver license will be taken away from me, they will try to force me to live in a nursing home, and it's me now, it's not theoretical anymore. If you had that perception, you'll say, I'm not coming back. And the issue is I'm not coming back, is it just for the diagnostic assessment or even for other care? We don't know. But that's, you know, that's the, that's the, the public attitude perception we, we dig in deeper. So at least from this, they tell me you need decision support tool. You know, you need decision tool to help them navigate if you decide here. Yes, sir. Did you look at economic status? Yeah. Yeah. All of us. We have a, we use the two way their their Medicaid, Medicare, Pities, and we ask about their income, and obviously their race and, and and other things. So we took into account their social economic status, and that did not explain that. So their perceived stigma was the major driver uh, for that. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, thanks for taking questions during the talk. Sure. But before you go on to the next part, what you've been talking about, your work from 2003, could you say really briefly what your screening tool was and what your con confirmatory tool was so we can relate it to current? Sure, sure. So our screening tool were two phases. Uh, because we want it much quicker. So we will do the six item screener in the beginning, which simply say, ask you what's today's date, what's today, uh, month, and, and, and year, and then answer that questions. And prior to that, give you three words. And then after you answer the, the three orientation, try to remember you. If you screen, if you made an error on any of this, then I, I kind of take you over to more full screening tools that take more than five minutes, around five minutes or so. Then that's how the combo of these two phase Will, will create the positive screen. If you do positive screen, then we bring you over for diagnostic confirmation. That diagnostic confirmation, the guidelines, which is we do structured interview with the family members, we do um, uh, neuropsychological testing, we do neurological exam, and if you, need, um, if you need imaging, if there's criteria for imaging, we look at your medicine, make sure you're not taking anticholinergic drugs, um, and, that, and then we bring them over to consensus and they will make the diagnosis based on uh, DSM-4 criteria. Thank you. Sure. So um, that was the screening, and then we were very interested in, in doing something to the people who screen positive. And so we developed the collaborative care model for dementia, very similar to the depression collaborative care model um, that was developed by uh, Jurgen Unitzer from University of Washington. This is, in a nutshell, the collaborative care model. Collaborative care model is a system redesign, all right? It doesn't do what we used to do to primary care in the past. In the past, a primary care system doesn't do well according to these specialists doesn't do well, then you kind of do this to them. Oh, you're not doing well. 
let me teach you how to do it right, correct? So you teach them, or you try to do education material. In dementia and depression, it doesn't work, all right? Because the problem is not lack of knowledge. It's the problem the system is not ready for it. So we had to redesign the system, and we brought in resources to the system to redesign it. And that resource with clinical liaison or care coordinator, we brought them to the primary care system, and we had them get access to the primary care doctor and to expert team, and they did a lot of work with the family member and went to the home, and they have a tracking system to tell them if they're going right or wrong, and they have set a protocol, very sophisticated um, uh, models. Um, that was the model that we tested randomized control trial, and it worked. And randomized controlled trial, it worked. Our primary outcome was behavior and psychological symptoms. We reduced that much more powerful than psychotropic medication or antipsychotics uh, and longer. Um, and you know, it seems like it, it translates to even financial potential gain. And we didn't switch the role by making the family member become a patient by increase their stress because we kept the people in, the, in their own home. So. Uh, the collaborative care model in randomized controlled trial, it worked. In 2006, we published it. I got promoted to associate <laughs> professor. I started going around. Uh, I went to Hawaii, you know, with the AGP. I went there, uh, you know, other things. And then I switched to delirium, the usual track. If you are research track, we, we stop what we call it the bookshelf. You know, for us, even though my passion was to change the world, but when I go to the incentive of grant. My incentive, it's, it's, uh, it's giving me stuff if I get grants and I get publication, correct? It doesn't give me anything if I translate this collaborative care model to actual clinical program that changed the life of people that I claim I chose science to do it, all right? So we call this the discovery to bookshelf instead of discovery to delivery uh, model. So that, you know, that's the usual, and it's all right, that's the incentive, all of us. Um, so by multiple luck, uh, I'll share with you how I decided you know what, let me really change the world, not just publish how to change the world. So um, before to do that, I had to say, if we take the collaborative care model and implement it for every CMS patient, does that make sense financially? And the answer is yes, at least from a forecasting simulation model. It looked like if we implement the collaborative care model, we'll save billions of dollars a year to Medicare, if Medicare adapted all of it. So that was good news. So I had that data with me in the background. And then something happened in 2007. Um, and what I'm going to share with you, this is an anecdotal case, but storytelling changed behavior more than abstract in New England Journal of Medicine. So, um, so when I, at least from my own perspective, I was in fundraising for breast cancer with, in 2007. In the same event, the CEO of the healthcare system, safety net healthcare system, where I used to do all my research, was in the same thing. And we were talking, and I don't know what come up to her. She, she, uh, her name is Lisa Harris, amazing lady, physician and CEO. She came over to me, and Chris Callahan, my mentor, was there. And she kind of said, you know, guys, I'm sick of you. You do all these research, cool thing in safety net hospital. You did this stuff, Chris, with depression and Malaysia, you guys did dementia. And then you publish it and you move on. What happened about trying to really changing the life? And I don't know what happened. Me and Chris were there and said, you know what? No, because you don't take care of us. So do you really want us to bring this collaborative care model? Let's do it. I need to build center of excellence in dementia. And she said yes. And I <laughs> called her a week later because, you know, people say yes in the meeting with, after drinks, but then when you call them a week later, they change their mind, correct? So I called her execution implementation. I called her later and said, yeah, create a committee. Tell me what you need. This was October, and I will do it. So in my mind was, oh. I'm going to write an audit one. I'm going to do something. We're talking about two to three years to make this happen. And she left with a little bit of asking, say, Malat, I'll give you whatever you need, but you need to start seeing patient by January. Two months. So I'm like, what? You know, for me, it's three years process to write a grant, get it funded, and all these kind of things, if you get lucky, too. Um, so I had to really um, react and 
check the research about how can you actually take a change and implement it in the new world? What are the tools? Because they don't teach us that in, when you're doing randomized controlled trial, even effectiveness randomized controlled trial. So this is where I start uh, being attached mm -hmm. to complex adaptive system theory and implementation science, and I use that tools to actually um, um, uh, you know, translate the collaborative care model to a real world. And this is how we translate it. And I had to run the same thing in this, when I do the translation to make sure it worked. And I'll show you a really um, uh, uh, two-minute video that will tell you how we did that process and how things are. So let me, let me um, switch things over here. So this, this was the, the video that I had to walk around all the time to make momentum. You know, it's different change you, uh, when you decide to implement something. I can't just simply go to my CFO, you know, and tell them, here's the New England Journal of Medicine, here's JAMA, life is really good, all right? I, uh, I, I went there, by the way, in the beginning, and my wife has uh, experience. She's, she used to be CEO of a healthcare system and she has a master in health administration, and she kept telling me in the beginning, but I didn't listen, Malaz, there is no p-value in the boardroom. You know? <laughs> and I will always go there with p-values, and they, they, it's different. It's, they're a different story, there's different things, so I had to do a lot of translations and work with them, and, and it, it really paid off. Our translation of the collaborative care model, I can't explain it completely, I'll explain it in more details in this afternoon, it simply added $600 in cost for each patient a year, but saved to my healthcare system, integrated healthcare system, around, in the worst case scenario, $2,800. So actually, my problem with my CEO has been scaling up, you know, because there was around 2,000 people in my system who would benefit from mine, and we were taking care of only 300, 400. And I couldn't find enough geriatrician. So the CMS Innovation Grant is answering the scale up, scalability. So I'm trying to figure out, can I deliver geriatricians-based care 
in, in a little bit in a team and more scalable way. And hopefully the answer will be in a couple of years. But for now, that's our scalability solution. So let me um, go back to the main thing. So in conclusion, based on the story that I shared with you so far, dementia is very common in primary care. 6% prevalence is not that, is not that low. It's undiagnosed in primary care. No doubt in that. I don't think you can make the diagnosis by just screening. You have to do more formal diagnostic assessment, follow the screening results. However, there's been multiple health system factors and even patients and public factor that make this formal diagnostic and management not practical. It's not, you need to redesign the system. We can do that. If you redesign the system in an innovative way, like an aging brain care program, I believe there's some data to reduce dementia burden. The question, does it reduce it for people who already screen detected or just starting with people with dementia? That's the one I'm trying to answer uh, later. And this is why we believe, if you are interested in the issue of screening asymptomatic people for dementia, we really need to wait for a randomized controlled dementia screening trial, at least as a first step. So the dementia screening trial that we started recruiting for last October, I'm sorry, uh, almost <coughs> October 2012, we have enrolled almost 800 people so far. It's gonna start with 6,000 people who have no um, dementia diagnoses, mm -hmm. drugs, uh, who had at least one visit to their primary care doctor in the past year. They're coming over, hopefully we'll, we'll get consent on 66% of them, so 4,000 of them. And then these 4,000, we will collect their health-related health quality of life measure, their depression, PHQ-9, their anxiety um, uh, measures. Um, and then we will randomize them one-to-one -to, -one to usual care. 2,000, you will just simply collect data on them one month, six months, and 12 months or dementia screening followed by giving them the collaborative care model if they screen positive, confirm the diagnosis and give them this. And we hope by doing so, we will not have high depression in the first months after the screening and we will have better health-related quality of life at 12 months. So that's the dementia screening, um, a trial that uh, is undergoing right now. Um, for more resources, the agingbraincare.com or .org, there's a lot of our tools that are open source that you can use over there. We have another social network that I had to create in my system to help with implementation. I find out in implementation, you really need to create social network of advocates and maintain almost, we call community-based participatory research to help you with the implementations. Um, and this is my email if you need any uh, questions. So um, I think we have until eight, until nine o'clock, so I'm more than happy to answer any other question. For more detail about our model, if you have time, I will explain it a little bit more around noon, correct? 12.30, around 12.30 at the Aging Center. Thank you. Yes, sir. So uh, any comments or questions, Dave? Thanks very much, that was a great talk. Uh, I, I wonder if you could address something that I think is relatively recent that may fall into your category of screening techniques, but we're not sure what to do with them. What about the new Lilly pet imaging agent that that was FDA approved because it did seem to be able to image accumulation of amyloid protein in parts of the brain, but the FDA also said that it, it couldn't really we don't know what to do with the information, either in making a diagnosis or prognosticating. So talk about a screening device that's expensive, and we don't know what to do with. What are the recommendations coming out of your group for this powerful technique but unclear utility? OK. So, um, so let me dissect your question into two questions. Is the MFS PET scan, the Lily, is it good for screening? Second, is it good for diagnostic confirmation, all right? For screening, any, um, our healthcare system is changing. Any 
tools that will cost more than $50 that will be implemented in asymptomatic people across millions of people is not going to be feasible. There will be no payer who will be able to do that. So the, in my perspective, MEVED as a screening tool is, is, is out of question. All right, we can't do it. All right, the healthcare system is going to be even tighter on looking for innovation with limited resources. Okay, especially innovation that will be spread across a lot, like screening tools. Now the second question is the diagnostic. Is there a role for MEVED in the diagnostic confirmation? The data that they brought in, it doesn't give me value for it. I don't see what's the MEVED value for what I'm currently doing to confirm the diagnostic to justify the false potential positive with MEVED because there will be patients who their amyloid, um, they will light up on the amyloid, but uh, their, their, their um, symptom might not be really have significant disability. And who, what are we gonna call them? They technically don't have dementia, they have Alzheimer's disease pathology landmark. And we don't know if we identify these people, we don't have a drug to change their process for sure. But we don't know if we're gonna give them collaborative care model, is that gonna help them even if they don't have significant disability. So I think the MEVET story right now um, need more studies in the diagnostic confirmation uh, piece. And simultaneously, I would let the healthcare, uh, the memory care practitioner kind of experiment with this. You already some people are, you know, are ordering the MEVED if the patient has money. Uh, they're trying to argue with uh, with the insurance company if it's covered or not. In my practice, I haven't used it. I haven't been able to justify to telling my patients, say, Dr. Bustani, is it worth it the three thousand, five thousand dollar to cover for this? I and, and look at me in my you know in face to face I couldn't say, if I was in your position, I'll do it. Yes? So um, one comment and one question. Um, so it, it seems to me somewhat analogous to the HIV issue when back in the day when there was a lot of stigma and not much benefit from it, and it all changed when, uh, when we got good drugs for uh, HIV. That was the comment. The question was, um, Basically, it seems to me that the value in, in part would be underestimated if you left out the people that you screened and were found to be depressed and, and, and in fact not demented and have, where we have very, very good treatment for it. And so the added benefit of that might um, make your screening test much, much more efficient. Cool. So let me answer your comment from the HIV concept. Um, is, is really a, a good analogy. We actually have things that will make an impact. We don't call them a drug. The collaborative care model is more effective than any drug. You know, it, any chronic disease, as you know, self-management, care management, it's, it's a huge contribution. The problem with, with the intervention we created is require redesign, system redesign. It require payment, repayment issue. I don't have the easy, quick drug prescription, uh, which the HID had. It's expensive a little bit, but we have something to offer to people. I just don't know yet, because it requires redesign, system redesign. I don't know if it will be uh, giving it to screen detected people is a good idea, or should I just simply offer it to people who have already been recognized to have dementia, because it's expensive. The second piece about the impact of benefit of screen on picking up depression, we are gonna measure that value. This is why we do PHQ-9. And part of the diagnostic confirmation is not just simply see if you have dementia or not. It's supposed to see if you have depression, if you have any other thing like anticholinergic, maybe I can just stop that and you'll get benefit. So we're in the trial, we're gonna look at the entire value. We're gonna follow everybody who screened, not just the folks who have dementia. You know, we're going to uh, measure the 2000 HUI PHQ-9 in the randomized arm in the usual uh, in the intervention arm in the usual care arm. Yes, sir. Um, thanks for your work in this field, by the way, and for this excellent talk. You know, the issue of screening is 
by definition very different from early uh, detection. Affirmation and detection. And Correct. That's what, where, where we live in the primary care fields. Correct. And the issue of HIV is entirely asymptomatic. It has major implications. But the issue of functional impairment with dementia, which by definition is what makes dementia dementia, not MCI, is something that is presenting like prostate cancer, but that's symptomatic on a level. So distinguishing the patient who comes in with a family member uh, or a patient who has some impairment in taking their medicines or these other issues, I'm assuming that's a different. They are very different. Totally different. Field. Completely different. Just a comment just to make sure that people are aware that that's a very different thing. And so my question along sure. there, in patients, and by the way, a question for you in this study that you're doing, what's the age curve? 65. Right. So you're going to be, of course, patients in your work who are age 80 or 85 are seeing 40 or 50% of those patients who are going to come to me. Yeah. And maybe 4% of true dementia. So I, I think it's important in presenting this that the concept of screening a low-base serum population uh, is a lot different than looking at the case detection and the patients who present to you. Perfect. No, no, so let me make it really clear because you raise a beautiful question. When I say asymptomatic, mean you have no caregiver coming over and say, Doc, wait a second, I need to talk to you. That's symptomatic. You don't have anybody who you're feeling is, you know, there's something going on. He's been in and out of the heart failure hospital, and I'm thinking he's not taking the medicine, not because he doesn't like it, because he can't execute. That's symptomatic. Or a patient come over and say, you know, doc, I have some functional, you know, I'm not able to, I've been falling a little bit more, um, I'm concerned about my memory, I'm depressed. These are symptomatic patients. So this definition of symptomatic, a family member sees some symptoms, the patient reports some symptoms, or the primary care doctor or clinician feels some symptoms. These are symptomatic and in that case, by the way, there's data to say, don't do screening. Just jump right over to diagnostics. There's no value to do screening in that piece, by the way. Like if you have people with red flag, giving them a screening case, it doesn't add any value. Just if you have a diagnostic, geriatric diagnostic or memory care or something, just do the diagnostic confirmation. You know, that doesn't help. The asymptomatic people are the one that I'm going for, who have no one suspect they have anything. No one suspects they have anything. They're not coming over with it. The patients are not reporting anything. The family members are not telling anything. In that group, should we screen them or not? And, and that's, that's the question that I've been, I've been going after. Yes, sir? So I just want to come at this from a slightly different perspective in terms sure. of benefit and risk. And that is, uh, we have an aging workforce. Okay. And some of those workers, including people in this room, like in healthcare, care for other people and public safety is at risk. And in the world of occupational medicine, we oftentimes do a lot of stuff looking for functional impairment that may affect performance. So I'm sure there's no data around this, but I just wonder about the perspective of looking at screening for cognitive impairment in specific workforces uh, as our workforce is aging and more and more people are in the workforce after it's very controversial um, because then here the issue of concern, you screen me and you find out something and I turn out not to be, because you know 20% will be normal, is people will say, oh, even though you told me this is normal, I don't, I don't believe in it. I'm going to try to put you on early retirement. Um, so that's the harm. For me, always, my ethical guidance for me is when somebody coming over and as a physician, coming over and ask for my help. That's very different when somebody's not asking for my help and I'm coming over and tell them, oh, let me help you out. The burden of making sure when I'm proactively come over, I'm not causing harm is very different, at least for me, to do that. So in that group who are not coming over and say, doc, you know, I'm struggling reading the radiology report or I'm struggling do something, you know, physician. Um, that's different than you screen everybody who's a radiologist or physician who are 60 and older, and you know, say, I want to make sure you don't have cognitive impairment. Uh, so I don't know. There's no data, obviously, 
and I'm really scared, so I, I kind of ignored that. <laughs> Just, uh, policy folks are really good. Right, well, I mean, I think that's the, that's the issue. It's different being a treating provider versus you run the airline, you run yeah, the that's very system, different. you run Dr. Hitchcock, and you're concerned about institutional reputation, exactly. you're concerned about patient harm. What should we do? The, our workforce is getting older, uh, and you know, there's the uh, FAA, flight, but they say at a specific age you can't fly anymore. That's maybe not fair either. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, the issue is, is how do you, you know, kind of follow these we, from a policy perspective? For me, as the implementation scientist, I try to become pragmatic. Right now, for the recognized case of dementia with no controversy, we're not doing good care. Let me start there, you know, and then slowly, slowly push it. <laughs> That's how I do stuff. But, uh,